welcome to episode 281 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasting. Hey brother, what are we what are we doing? Hey brother, <laughs> just switching up the cadence a yeah, little bit because you know I'm it. sure people have an expectation of what they're about to hear. I just wanted to throw people off a little bit. Variety is the spice of life. It's true. Paprika is the spice of food. Okay, Let's throw so that out there. and pumpkin, <laughs> pumpkin is the spice of fall. I guess that's true. also true. It's true. I didn't see this direction coming, but <laughs> now I've been thrown off. So that, that I think everything has been achieved. So, and speaking of like maybe a little bit more curveballs is we're not even going to do affirmations and denials on this particular episode because we've got so much we want to talk about. We're finally moving from very poor or crazy theories of creation to the really good ones. Yes. But before we do get to that, I do want to throw out a reminder that as always, we love to interact with brothers and sisters who are listening and are joining us. And one way to do that is get your voice and a voicemail with a question. So we haven't done this in a little while by reminding people that we do have a voicemail box and you can call this number. So everybody get ready. If you're driving, pull over for a second, grab a piece of paper, grab your phone. Here's the number. It's 607-444-2767. Bros. Right on cue. So if you dial that number, you can leave us a voicemail. You can talk about whatever you want. If you have a question, that would be great because we're once again compiling questions for an upcoming future episode of which we will answer them. And the best way to ask a question is to be brief. So if you want to have a greater probability of your question being on there, just so we can get more questions in, have people hear more of the voices that are part of the Reformed Brotherhood, the best way is to dial 607-444-2767 and leave a brief voicemail. How else, Tony, can people join the Brotherhood? What else can they do? Well, right now the options are limited because I got a bug going on and I just deleted all of our social media because I'm sick of social media. But uh, you can always email us at Info Reform Brotherhood. You can uh, join us as a Patreon sponsor by going to patreon.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, you can visit our website and you can click on the link that says join the Brotherhood with the aforementioned uh, caveat that social media, even though it's there, no longer exists. Uh, there's a couple things you can do, like purchasing some merch. We've got some sweet new pint glasses. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, other than that, you can share the episode with a friend. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify. Um, and you, I don't know, maybe like write the URL on a note card and like leave it in the tip jar at Starbucks. <laughs> do people do that? You could do that. I don't know if it'll accomplish know. anything, but, right. but you could do that. Yeah, just like run down the street and be like, Reform Brotherhood is the greatest. Just shout it out. <laughs> shout it from the rooftops. Climb up onto a rooftop and shout that from the rooftops. <laughs> you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned in a while, and it might be worth bringing up again, is by God's grace, we have a pretty extensive back catalog now of episodes. So one good way if you want to search for a topic is to go to the website and just drop in any kind of keyword and, and see what pops up. I'm going to guess that something will pop up these yeah. days because we've talked about a lot of good stuff. So this is just another reminder that we're hoping that maybe you use our silly little voices to grab a couple friends or some family members, talk about a topic, listen to something together, debate, dialogue, have a cup of coffee or a pint of beer and talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, we're always moving in this direction where we want to love, appreciate, serve, and obey Jesus better 
more fully with all of our resources. And this could be one of those resources. So use it to your advantage. It's, it's all that stuff is out there. You can also catalog our lives to some degree by listening back <laughs> over these 280 episodes and see the various things we've talked about, the ways in which we've changed, the ways in which we've processed different parts of theology, both in real time and as, as current events unfolded in the past. And it's kind of like a weird time machine of being able to see where we've been. It's true. It is sort of surreal too when people are like, people will sometimes ask me, they'll write, write us an email and ask me a question about something I said like 190 right. episodes ago. And I'm like, I don't even remember Amazing. saying that. So it is like a weird time capsule, but also it's sometimes I'm surprised by things I said or thought, thought I said. Uh, and it turns out that we learn and grow over time. So more than once people have emailed me and asked me what I meant by a certain thing. And I kind of had to say, I, I don't really remember, or I, I don't mean that. I don't believe that anymore. I've changed my position. Um, right. yeah, I don't get emails very often asking about injected grace anymore. So I think most people have made it past that, past that hump, but every once in a while we'll get someone who starts from episode one and you can tell when they hit some of those like seminal transition moments where we say yes. something dumb uh, or we say something in, in felicitously and uh, we get a question about it. So we do love when people go back and listen, but it's always kind of humorous to hear uh, the foibles and, and, you know, mishaps that have happened along the way. That's true. Just in case like this is anybody's first episode listening to us, we're always recording without a net, which is one of the things I love about the conversations yeah. with you is that we're kind of unapologetic in the fact that we don't edit. So if you think this sounds edited, you're actually wrong. <laughs> it's just real time. Yes. So anything that gets said, gets said and gets recorded. And uh, that's the fun. And also the joy of like processing again, theology together, yeah. which is like a great gift that God gives us. So to that end, if you were not, had not listened to the last episode where we started talking about how do we understand creation and what are maybe some improper ways to think about it, definitely go listen to that because that's just as important as what we're about to talk about today. But we're moving on from that to say, okay, what are the correct ways to conceptualize, to understand, to think about what are the good rubrics, the ways that we can approach creation? Yeah. So we're, we're kind of zeroing in on Genesis 1. Um, obviously, when you talk about creation, Genesis 1 looms large over the rest of the Bible. There are obviously other passages, passages in the Psalms. There's references throughout the scripture. There's little little snippets here and there that are, are part of the conversation. But Genesis 1 uh, and Genesis 2, but Genesis 1 especially is the big one. And so last week we talked about various theories that take take either take sort of an overly naturalistic view of Genesis one and try to explain what's going on in natural terms. Um, so something like the day age theory, which is saying, you know, right. we, we are looking at Genesis one and seeing millions or billions of years of time in, in what the Bible calls a day um, or a course of six days or um, options that just mythologize the text and basically say there's no there's no reality there's no truth behind this maybe it's telling a story and that story communicates something true um, but the, the the reality of creation is not represented God God created everything but it's not reflected how he did it in this text and we kind of excluded both of those kinds of views to say we really can't come to the Bible and Genesis 1 and say either this is somehow a, a literary way to talk about what naturalistic 
creationists or naturalistic scientists believe happened. And we also can't come to this and say, this is just sort of like ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age mythology about how this came to be. This isn't the Enuma Elish, right? This isn't the the uh, Bale cycle from Ugarit. This isn't any of those kinds of things. This week, we're going to talk about various theories that Jesse and I may or may not actually hold, but that we believe are, are plausible um plausible explanations of Genesis 1 that that do justice to the text on some level. Um, and again, just like last week, most of these views are not entirely mutually exclusive when we're going to talk about them. Um, there's going to be two, maybe three main views, but they're not mutually exclusive in that you can only hold one. Most of them have some overlap and the difference is sort of around the edges where there's some some variation or some nuance. Right. I like that. And I would say right from the beginning, I'm going to challenge everybody who's listening to us to, again, use this as maybe a springboard for a conversation with others. Because I think part of what we're trying to highlight here is trying to understand our presuppositions, which maybe you might find that you actually hold one of these views, but maybe you didn't know that it was called a particular thing or that it might be an overlap with something else that you've read or somebody else you've talked about. Again, grab a friend and your favorite listening device, hang out together and talk about it. Yeah. So the the primary views that come out of this <laughs> um, are a lot of times sort of pe- pejoratively called uh, literalistic views or, or literal views. And a lot of times when someone asks you if you believe the Bible literally, if you, you think the Bible is literal, especially if they're talking about Genesis 1, there's kind of this embedded, you don't believe that the Bible is literal, do you? There's kind of this like snide right. backhanded part to the question. Um, and the funny part is, yeah, most most evangelical Christians actually do believe that the Bible and this part of the Bible is literal. The, the dominant view throughout church history is that this view that Genesis 1 is presenting is more or less the surface level face, face value level of the text. And so right. I'm not even sure what you would call this view, except to say this is just a, a historical view of the Bible. The, this is the, that Genesis 1 presents a historical view in plain language that anyone who's reading right. it should be able to understand. So when it says there was morning and there was evening the first day, it's talking about more or less an ordinary 24-hour solar cycle. Now, we have to understand in a couple of the first days before, you know, before the the light is collected and sort of gathered into these centralized lights that, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars, we have to recognize that there's a certain level of difference between how days functioned, but the Bible is still presenting a more or less historical view in that these are this is the order that things happened, things happened on the days that they happened, and the days don't represent something outside of our drastically outside of our normal experience of what a, what a 24-hour cycle is. Now, there are various theories that would sort of say like, well, some of the days might have been a little bit longer. Some of them might have been a little bit less long. Um, for example, Herman Bovink says that day days one, I think one, two, and three had to have been drastically different in terms of the experience right. of them. If you were a, a human somehow positioned in the cosmos on day one, it would be a very different feel to the day than there would have been on day four, whatever it is when when the lights are gathered. I don't have the text right in front of me. But that said, even someone like Bavink who wants to acknowledge that the text seems to present a, a world where, where certain elements of the day were different prior to certain things, he's still saying this is still basically a, a six, you know, six 24-hour days. There's, there's nothing 
out of the super out of the ordinary about these first six days um, with a few features, you know, otherwise. And again, this is the dominant view throughout the history of the church by by most people who have come to the Bible with without some sort of presupposition that kind of points them away from this view. When a, an average Christian in the seventh century came to the Bible or in the 17th century came to the Bible for the most part, starting with the apostles, you know, through to today, this is just what people understood Genesis to mean. There are some notable exceptions that we'll probably talk about, but this is the dominant view throughout history. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that because although we don't want to ever come to the Bible and say, well, this is the historical view, therefore it's right. Cause we always want to be searching the scriptures for ourselves. We always want to be assessing and interpreting the scriptures for ourselves. We should step outside of kind of the safety of the dominant view with, with caution, I think. So whether it's a, the dominant view of soteriology that's handed down to us, you know, from the reformed churches or whether it's the dominant view of what Genesis one means and how creation occurred, we should step away from what the church has consistently said with, with a measure of caution. Yeah, I think that's helpful because one of the things I thought, I really thought you were about to, as an example, say baptism. So I was like positioning for that and then <laughs> it just, it, you didn't drop it. I thought it was waiting to happen. So that's important because I think one of the things that we need to remember is basically what you're saying is that the church historically has looked at Genesis 1 as just really good, almost like reporting. It's right. event reporting. It's an account of what actually happened. And to some degree, like it's a little bit of like chronological snobbery in that like the postmodern view seems to kind of promulgate that we need to look beyond the fact that it could be an account to basically allegorize or try to like overemphasize or read beyond or between the lines when really it, for the most part the church has interpreted this as saying, this is God telling us how he brought the world into order in a literal sense without getting into all the stuff that we could say about the fact that the Bible of course is a, a literary book that's employing lots of literary devices. And so to be literal is not, of course, to take every metaphor literally, but to understand that it is a metaphor and it should be understood literally in light of that particular usage. What we're saying here is that what you see is what you get. Yeah. Like the, the plain things are the main things. Like I was in, intending to emphasize these things as an actual historical, literal record of how he brought the world into being for his glory and for our good. And it's odd to me that there's so many, like if you look, would you say it's fair? Let me say this, ask you this. Is it fair to say in your opinion that again, a lot of like this bringing metaphor allegorizing, like this comes much later in history than it does like in the early church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some figures in the early church um, who looked at the Genesis one account and for a variety of reasons, coming from the text, though, that's very important. There's a there's right. a variety of figures in the early church. Augustine is probably the most notable of all of these who looked at the text and drew the conclusion that this is a, a representative statement of some sort. So Augustine or Augustine, he looked at it and he he said, well, you can't have an ordinary day you know, when, when light just exists everywhere, there's no such thing as evening and morning if light exists everywhere, because evening and morning is determined by the sun 
the relative position of the earth and how it faces away or, or towards the sun. Um, obviously he was understanding that in a slightly different way, but they had a pretty good understanding even, you know, even in the fourth, fifth century, they had a pretty good understanding of astronomy and understanding, right. you know, that the, the sun is what gives the earth light. And so the earth turns away from the sun and that's when it gets dark. So he drew the conclusion, for example, that all of this happened in a single instant, that everything is recorded across Genesis one in the beginning of Genesis one, uh, Genesis two, all of that actually happened in an instant. And then God explains it in this unfolding way as a way to accommodate this instantaneous creation to our own abilities. Um, and that's a pretty common feature among those in the early church who want to say for a variety of textual reasons that the text here is not presenting a literal historical account, but is somehow accommodated to our ability. Now, this is very different than some of the liberal responses that will say, well, the, the Bronze Age people who were receiving Genesis, they just had no idea about the cosmos. And so this is a Bronze Age cosmology, and God used this false cosmology to communicate. That's not at all what the early church figures. Right, exactly. um, or, or there are some in the Reformation. There's people today, we'll talk about the framework view in a little bit here, who don't come to this and draw that same conclusion. But they're not coming to it with the conclusion that God is presenting falsehood. They're coming to it with the conclusion for textual reasons. Um, that the text is presenting something in, in a non-historical way. But they're still the, the drastic minority throughout the history of the church. The vast majority of, of not just average people, but the vast majority of, of you know, articulate Christian theologians and thinkers, um, Christian scientists, not like the religion Christian science, but scientists who are Christians even, the vast majority throughout his, the history of the church have come to the Genesis 1 account and saw this as more or less a historical account um, in chronological order that represents that they would read. Let me put it this way. They would read Genesis one, the same way they would read like acts 22 or, you know, first Kings 17, like any of those historical texts or Genesis 33, you know, they would read this as not substantively different from the other texts in terms of the chronology and the historicity of it. So I think you're right in that for sure. Right. And that's one of those things that like, I think you were kind of saying is, you need to understand your approach when you're coming into this. Like, you know, what, what is your intent as you try to understand what's being said here? And sometimes it's just helpful to us to understand that we might have a biased intent there, that we're yeah. trying to prove something or read something in either ICG. But I also think that there's sometimes in our current culture and under appreciation for the fact that scripture is our eternal contemporary because God has organized it as such. So this, again, I think should help us shape at the end of the day, I'm trying to stay away from the words in the final analysis. <laughs> At the end of the day, when everything is all done, whatever, whatever cliche you want to use, like we need to come back to the fact that God has given us this word, the scripture, to explain to us something that is true about reality. And with all the other theories that we kind of threw out last week, I think what we found is that we were trying to, or those who promulgate them rather, were trying to smuggle in something. And we're, we're really trying to be faithful to what the text elaborates and enumerates here knowing that God has given us the scripture for all times, for all purposes, for all epochs. Yeah. And we'll get a little bit into it a little bit more um, on the next episode when we talk about Genesis 2 and we start to talk about pre-fall anthropology. But it should go to say as well that this this view that we're saying is the dominant view throughout the history of the church doesn't also doesn't see a disparity or a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So that's something that's right. also very popular in liberal circles is to sort of talk about the creation accounts 
with a plural there, and they pit Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 against each other. Um, because to be honest and transparent, on a very flat surface level reading, there are some disparities that we have to grapple with. And so rather than try to harmonize or grapple with those seeming contradictions or con- what we like to call contrarieties, what they do well is done. they just say, well, they're different accounts and they're contradictory. They, they, they just don't right. match. Um, there are some people who would hold not that's not sort of like these mythological accounts, but would be driven to what what might be called more of a, a literary or a metaphorical account um, that still comes to the text with, I think, valid presuppositions and comes away from the text with interpretations that are possible. But they're driven to some of those by looking at the text. Again, looking at the text. That's so important. Looking at the text and saying, well, we have to understand that both of these accounts are true. Um, but we can't just neatly line the accounts up. They don't They don't just mesh together without a little bit of work. So rather than do that work, sometimes we, we treat Genesis 1 um, in a literary sense or a metaphorical sense, um, which we'll talk about framework theory here in just a minute. That's important to say, though, that even those views that do that are not postulating a contradiction between the two texts. They're using the fact that one text is structured a certain way and another text is structured another way and trying to synthesize those texts in a way that's healthy and useful. But again, this the the key here is is what you come to the text with and how you treat the text. That really is is a major factor in determining what what it is that you come away from the text with. If you come to the text starting from the presupposition that the Bible is just a collection of of human-made right. documents written over the course of a thousand years, you know, in this case, you know, could be multiple authors even for just these two chapters, um, you come to the text with these naturalistic or mythological presuppositions, you're going to walk away from the text with a naturalistic or a mythological conclusion, you know, garbage in, garbage out, as they say. Um, so we want to make sure that we emphasize, as we're talking about the views that we think are plausible or possible, that the ones we are willing to say, even if we disagree with, but we're willing to say, well, I guess that's possible, are the ones that come to the text with supernatural conclusion, uh, supernatural presuppositions. Yes, right on. That the things in the text that don't match the natural order of things as we understand them, that's fine because this is not a natural event, right? The creation right. of the cosmos out of nothing is not a natural event. And so we have to understand that if we come to it understanding that, that God did a supernatural miracle in the creative act, then we walk away from the from that with an understanding that yeah, this may not line up with what we think the how we think the natural world world functions now. Um, we can walk away from it saying, but that's okay because God was doing a miracle. The same way we might walk away from the empty tomb and say, well, there's something going on here and it's it's not natural. That's fine because we we are affirming a supernaturalism that is latent in the text that we have to come to it with. Right. That's right on. I mean, and by the way, but I mean, here we could take like a sharp, real sharp left turn and go into a whole nother episode yeah. on all things like apologetics and creation. But I, I think it should suffice to say that everybody must contend with these tough questions right. about creation. So it's not as if like the Christian worldview comes under particular scrutiny. Everybody is going to have to somehow, again, try to explain how things came into being. And once you start that process, you will have to answer hard questions. So what we're doing here is not any different than any other worldview would have to contend with. But again, we're just trying to be faithful to the text. If you come 
with this approach that says, I want to have fidelity to the text. In some ways, let the text read me, even as I read it in terms of trying to understand creation. I think that is the far better approach. That is the more faithful approach. Yeah. And again, this also comes down to like, how much do we trust God and his word? How much do we trust that what he's telling us is the truth and that we don't need to supplement it, try to fill in gaps, but that he's giving us exactly what we need for life and for faith. That applies especially me particularly in Genesis one. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's you've teased a framework theory a little bit. So why don't we just start there? Yeah. So the, the view we just articulated, you might call, you know, you might call uh, young earth creationism. I just call it like basic, basic creationism. Framework theory is another view that comes to the Genesis one text and recognizes this is not exclusively originating with Meredith Klein, but he's kind of the most famous modern proponent of it. He's kind of the modern progenitor of it. People have been observing these these literary framework features of Genesis 1 as long as there's been interpretations of Genesis 1 that we have records of. But the framework theory comes to the text and recognizes that this there's this six-fold structure to the text with days one through six. Day seven right. sort of fills a different function and, and sort of operates differently. But days one through six function in a way that makes a literary framework. And so this sort of, um, I don't want to call it poetic because this is not written in a style of Hebrew poetry, but this literary style that shows us day one is this, day two is this, day three is this. And then predominantly day three populates something about the first day, the first three days and day four populates something about the first, right. you know, first three days, this sort of like structure to the text leads many people. And this is a, this is a view that is very popular in reform circles. So you'll run into it. This is a view that is probably dominant, predominant at uh, Westminster, California, for example. So this is the view that would be put forward in Michael Horton's systematic theology. Um, and again, Meredith Klein's influence is very heavy there. So this view looks at the text and sees this literary structure, a literary framework, which is where it gets its name. And it says, well, we should read this as a literary function that doesn't necessarily tell us straight up history. So it's it's right. giving us true things about God. It's telling us true things about God and his intention in creation. But it's not as much telling us about the historical event of creation. There are other places that they'll go to in the text. But this sort of treats Genesis 1 in some ways as kind of like a literary prologue to Genesis 2 and following. So the creation account really starts, the historical part of the creation account for this view tends to start in Genesis 2. And then Genesis 1, you know, Genesis 1 through 2, 3 roughly is sort of like this introduction to the text. And so it functions by setting up, um, you know, day one is the the creation of light. Day two is the separation of the waters. And day three is the, um, I'm looking at the text real quick here. Um, day three is the separation of the waters, of the waters above right. from the waters below. So, so separating out the sky and the waters, the heavens and the waters. And then day three is separating the lower waters apart from each other so that earth appears. So it's creating these sort of realms or these spheres of, of reality that different things exist in. And then days three through six or four through six take about the task of populating those areas. So on right. day four, the light or the lights in the heavens now kind of coalesce into individual lights that populate the heavens, right? So this, this view doesn't necessarily view this. They would look at this. Um, I don't necessarily have uh, great feelings about the Chronicles of Narnia, but they would look at this similar to like the creation account in... Um, 
the magician's nephew, right? There's this point where the, the figures in the story go to this sort of blank space. And then Aslan calls the universe into creation. He kind of sings it into creation, or they might look at this similar to the Silmarillion, right? The, The beginning of the Silmarillion where, where the, you know, they're looking at this, not as fiction, but as a similar kind of creative narrative that communicates something about the creator. Um, they're not saying this is fiction. They're not saying that this is, is, is inaccurate history or that it's a mythology, but they're treating it as sort of a type of, of literature, maybe called like a creation narrative or creation epic or something like that, creation saga. And it's designed to communicate true things about the creator, but not necessarily true things about the process of creation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right on. I think that this view is really principally concerned that the days are not meant to be understood chronologically, but logically. And if people have tracked with us for any length of time, we've had several episodes where we talked about like, for instance, in salvation difference between like temporal and logical understanding like of events. So you can see how there is some precedent at least for the reform to think in these ways. So they're basically saying the days are not sequential, like you said, but they're written in this literary framework. What differentiates this composed to like the, the hot trash list that we had last week <laughs> is that the even though this arrangement is not chronological, it's still a device to communicate and teach that God created all things. Right. So there's an emphasis that what we're trying to what we should learn here is not to get wrapped up so much in the fact that there was an order of events that are critically expounded and are explicitly articulated, but rather still that the emphasis here is that God did all of this stuff. And that because of that, it's clear that God is the creator of the universe. So I'm with you. Like this is, there are a lot of people that I know and love very dearly who hold to this view and they have strong feelings about like the fact that again, they're trying to be faithful to the scripture and that they say it's logically clear in the reading of this, that God is trying to teach us and expound to us that he made and he created from nothing. Right. And that this, of course, honors his glory and is a way to understand the proper context of the world and everything that comes out of it because God did it. So in that way, like there's a lot to like in this, right? In the sense that like, again, we are getting this the clear sense that what matters most is that God is ruler over all, that God has created over all, that God oversees and sustains everything by the power of his hand. And that's clear in this view. So I like what you said. I think it's helpful as we continue to go on in this conversation that is this possible? Yeah, sure. Like this is, I would say like a view that definitely has a lot in it that you can come alongside and say, I can get down with that. And there's a lot in this because again, there's a strong connection to the fact that we want to understand the Bible as it is articulated to us. And this is one of those things. And you know, you and I have said many times before, like in other things, it's sometimes helpful to understand things logically rather than chronologically yeah. or logically rather than temporally. Yeah. So there's a lot here that you can say like, okay, I see what you're doing here. And I see that again, you're trying to apply something consistently with creation that you might apply it to other places in the scripture. So I, I am not, are, am I, are we like bearing the lead here? Like I'm not in love with this view, <laughs> but, but I definitely like understand, like there's a lot, you know what I mean? There's a lot here that I appreciate yeah. and I'm kind of like, yes, I see what's going on here. Like, and that makes me kind of want to come alongside and say, there's a lot here that I understand. I think like the emphasis, the underpinnings that are prompting people to want to believe this. And again, I think these are people, especially in their, in the reform tradition who are saying like, I'm really concerned with making sure the guy gets the glory here. And this is the way that I understand it properly. Yeah. And you know, this, this is a situation to maybe contrast it to what we might call the mythological view, 
right? That looks at this right. as a mythological exactly. account that didn't ha- none, none of it is true in any real sense. It's it's a entirely a mythological statement. Typically, the mythological view comes to this and looks at certain features of the text that don't really line up with how we understand the universe to work and say, therefore, it must be myth. The people who come to this from this perspective, the literary framework perspective, and say um, there are certain features of this that don't seem to line up with how what we understand about reality, how we understand about how the world works, therefore... They don't say it's myth. Therefore, this is sort of a metaphor or sort of a, a literary tool to teach us about God. And so they would they would tend to say that because they would look at it and say, well, God said, let there be light. And there was light, but there was no earth. So what are we talking about? Right, right. Day is a temporal frame that depends on the earth existing and, and circling, you know, revolving on its axis and orbiting the sun. Well, there's no sun to orbit and there's no earth to be orbiting. And so therefore right. this text cannot be talking about the physical structure of the cosmos as we understand it. And so they take that next jump and instead of saying, therefore it's entirely mythological, it's entirely fabricated. What they're saying is God is accommodating himself. He's teaching us something about himself and about the nature of the world and the nature of the cosmos through these literary techniques. And this is why Meredith Klein is such an instrumental figure in this, because Meredith Klein then connects all of this, and this is why it's sort of seen as a prologue to Genesis 2, is he connects all of this information to the fact that man is created in the image of God. And so he sets up these sort of like Russian nesting dolls. Am I allowed to say Russia on the internet at this point? I think I can still say the word (laughs) Russia, right? He, he sort of lines them up as these Russian nesting dolls where like there's these sort of layers of authority or layers of dominion. There's the realms and then there's those who have dominion over the realms. And then on top of that, that, that sets humans up as the, the um, sort of lieutenant uh, rulers over all of it because they're created at the end of the last day. And so this is important because, again, it's not as though he's coming to this and going, well, this just doesn't make sense, so I'm going to say it's all made up. He's actually looking at the Bible holistically and saying, well, Genesis 1, in this literary style, fits well to set up what's going on in Genesis 2. And therefore, we can understand it as being consistent with Genesis 2 because it is this sort of has this sort of effect as a prologue. And I think there's a lot of strengths to this view. I'm very gun shy of this of adopting this view kind of wholesale because it is sort of on the vein of of this mythologizing view where it right, kind of takes exactly. the text and in my opinion it sort of discards some of the supernaturalism of the Bible because it says like well we understand that a day this is what a day means it's this it's this reference point with an earth and the sun and the earth orbiting and revolving and it sort of says, so therefore, like, we can't look at this as a historical thing. There's a lot of reasons why that logic doesn't work. But there's also a lot to be commended about this view. Because you, you can't hold a literary framework view and not take, uh, not take the text of the Bible very seriously. In right. some ways, it actually takes the text of the Bible more seriously right, exactly. than what, what your average young earth creationist might, who looks at it and goes, yeah, it's like just a history book. Well, it's not just a history book. There's a lot more to it than that as well. So I think this is a view that has a lot to be commended, even though I'm not quite able to adopt it wholesale. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Again, this is the kind of thing, the beauty of having this kind of conversation and kind to go through these part and parcel is to understand 
their essential elements, like the underpinning things, the first order principles. And I'm, I'm totally down with what you're saying. It's one of those things where I've grown to appreciate the fact that this is coming from a place of trying to understand the scriptures and to like embrace it fully right. and to take it very literally. I mean, the literal view, this fact that it's a literary device is not to necessarily discount the scriptures, actually to say God is using this as a conduit right. to teach something profound that is actually real but at the same time, it takes a little bit of the edge off, right. like you said. Yeah. And so that's where usually I'm kind of like, all right, I can only go so far, but then it's it's a bridge that's a little bit too far. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, there's some other views that sort of fit almost within the umbrella of some of these. So there's there's this young earth creation view that we've talked about. There are some yeah. views, you know, the young earth creation view generally because it views the scriptures as a whole as more or less straightforward history, um, which has its own pitfalls, right? Because ancient people didn't do history the way that modern people do. So we have, there is some flexibility and some things we have to talk about and understand. We'll get to that when we get to somewhere down in like 2026, when we start talking about, you know, bibliology and stuff like that. Um, there are some people that would look at this and say, okay, young earth creationism more or less sees a world that's maybe at the most, maybe 10,000 years old. And, and there's some flexibility in that most young earth creationists would say that, you know, this vast space of time that the, the, his, you know, historical sciences postulate, just, we just can't really get there in the text. There are some people um, predominantly looking at Genesis one and two. This is sort of like the gap theory we talked about last week, but we'll say, we don't really know how long the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. We don't really know what the time frame of the earth being in this sort of primordial pre-created state, right? Because we affirm creation ex nihilo or creation out of nothing. So God creates the heavens and the earth in this view God creates the heavens and the earth. So Genesis one, and then the earth that God has created is sort of this like unformed void, uh, you know, it's like unshaped matter. It's like a lump of Play-Doh. Think about it. And then Genesis three and following is the account of God sort of shaping and creating and, and causing that to become something formed and structured. Um, that actually is probably pretty close to how the Hebrew mind might have read this, that that God did create out of nothing. There was nothing. And then God right. created. And then the real act of creation um, is God's shaping and structuring things. There's an evangelical scholar named John Walton who postulates a view of this uh, in his book, Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, he goes off the deep end on a lot of this stuff and just straight up mythologizes it. But this idea that the Hebrew mind would have looked at this as the sort of the primeval act of pre-creation where God calls all of the material of creation into being and then sort of a second phase or a second act of creation, um, not act as in like an, a second work, but like a second act, like to a play, the second act of creation is God now structuring and shaping all of this. That's probably not too far off. And I don't think that's discordant with young earth creationism in general, but they would, they would typically, there's a group, a group of people who would typically see and say, well, we don't really know how long, the earth existed or the, the cosmos existed in this unshaped form where the matter existed, but the shape and the form of it did not yet exist. That's a view that's out there. I don't really like it. I don't buy it. I think it's unnecessary. It's introducing again, presuppositions into the text that I don't think it are justified by the text, but sometimes people will use this to try to synthesize or harmonize what appears to be a really old universe with what the Bible seems to be presenting, which is a relatively new or relatively young earth. So they would say something like the reason that the universe appears to be so old 
and and the reason that everything out there is so chaotic is because this old unshaped universe existed for billions of years and then at some point god then started to shape and form this little corner of the earth, of the universe that we call the earth again i don't think that's a great view i think there's a number of pitfalls but i think it's a it's a plausible view it's a reasonable view that comes to the text and seeks to make a valid inference or a valid interpretation from what the text says Again, I think the weakness is it comes to it with some presuppositions that I don't think the text right. itself supplies. Right. Yeah, that's right on. I have actually nothing to add to that. I think that that's a really good description. Again, it, this is one of those things where it's like we just need to be honest with how we approach the scriptures. Yeah. We think that like we come with like a pure or like a clean slate, but most of the times like we have something vested. We have something to prove. There's a horse in the race or a dog in the fight. Yep. It's just that it's like really subtle. So it's really helpful, I think, to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish when you try to come to Genesis 1 to understand how God created the world. Also, like maybe we should say, and this is maybe a whole different discussion, but like how much of like these different divergent variant views are really helpful in trying to understand yeah. what it means? Like is are these things like essential to being faithful to God? And that and that's where again we're trying to come back to like the center of the scriptures. And so like a variant view is something that we just need to try to understand, especially in light of whether or not we are influencing that. Like we ourselves are the variant. And now I realize my wife is just rewatching all the Loki <laughs> series. And I've just like come, I've just come full circle on that. Like, so maybe I'm, 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 it's possible I'm using that too metaphorically <laughs> because of like all the things I've just seen, but you know what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, you know, there's one last I don't know if you want to call it combination of views or, or of a distinct view Do it. that call tries that. to synthesize the literary framework view and the young earth creation view. Right. And so what it wants to say is um, that the earth is young, that the Genesis account is more or less historical, but that the ordering and the specific narrative structure is shaped by other influences or other motivations that God or Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit had in how the story is told. And they would point to point to this same kind of feature of, um, of something like the gospels where we recognize that the gospels are not necessarily telling the account of Jesus's life and ministry in strict chronological order. Right. So we, we recognize that, you know, a famous example is that I think in Matthew, the temptations of Christ go in one order and in Luke, the temptations yep. of Christ are in a slightly different order. And so we I, honestly, I don't know what the difference is in terms of what the theological importance of that is. But we would recognize that the the um, the gospel writers felt free to rearrange events in particular orders in order to make a theological point. And so right. this view, I don't think it has a specific name, but it wants to sort of marry the fact that this is more or less a chronological order, just like the Gospels are more or less a chronological order. But the author being Moses, in a lot of cases, people will believe this is Moses. The author felt free to tell this account in an order that may or may not actually map up directly chronologically. But the basic contours of God creating in a relatively short amount of time, uh, in re basically the way that the text tells us, 
uh, that that's still in Kate in true, uh, still true. But this also sometimes helps to alleviate some of the apparent contradictions or apparent, you know, uh, tensions between Genesis one and two, right? They'll say, well, okay, Genesis one is reframed. And actually I think this is probably the, the dominant evangelical view. So if yes. you were to look at someone like John MacArthur, who is a very literal interpreter and ask him how to understand the difference between Genesis one and Genesis two, that the differences that we see, he would say something like, well, Genesis one is the big picture view. And Genesis two is the, the zoomed in view on the creation of man. And so he would right. sort of say like the literary tech, in Genesis one is slightly different. And that's why things are told in a slightly different order because it's a different emphasis. This has, again, lots of things to commend it. Um, but also lots of pitfalls, right? John MacArthur basically brushes away the differences between the two and says like, well, one's a zoomed out view and one's a zoomed in view. Right. But that doesn't actually account for the fact that on, on the zoomed in view, birds are created along with the animals. And on the zoomed out view, birds are created along with the, um, with the sea creatures, right? Actually, I think that's reversed. But either way, like on right. one one view, the the birds are created with the sea creatures, and on the other one, the birds are created with the land animals. Well, that's not a matter of zooming in or zooming out. It's a matter that one is one is telling one in a literary style, and one is not. So this is a view that is a lot more common among evangelicals than I think people might realize on first glance. Right. It's the default default view, I think, right. actually. Yeah. Right. Like I, I think most people when you think of like creation, if you were to let's say like you're trying to explain it to a loved one or a friend who is not a Christian, you're gonna fall into this. There's nothing wrong with that per se. It's right. just that is I think the way that most people or if you're explaining to a child, like usually yeah. that's like a kind of child's view, which again is not to take anything away from it or to say like it is again, like we've talked about having a simple but not simplistic faith. And in many ways we're talking about the more and most straightforward definition. Maybe all of this episode is about like what is straightforward yeah. and trying to understand yeah. what is straightforward about creation in Genesis one and taking from that again, the plain things being the main things without getting like too out of hand and like plenty of people like, so there's like always people around the edges here who are interpreting Genesis one in lots of ways. And they will float in between all the things we've just talked about so much so that sometimes you'll be reading something and you'll say, well, that's not right, but it's like not even wrong. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just out there. Like I actually think of, uh, AB Simpson did this a lot in some of his writing where it was like very metaphysical, but like everything had like some kind of, metaphysical or metaphorical connection. Yeah. And so there was always a need to go deeper or always a desire to go deeper and explain something when you might say like, you, you like, you just had me at like, this is what was, you know what I mean? Like this, right. this seems plain is what God is trying to communicate. Even the Puritans were sometimes guilty of this in their interpretation of Genesis. Yeah. You know, like there was a desire of course, to always tie things into deep theological matters, but all the scriptures are theological. So like by definition, you are learning something about who God is, about his character and his outworkings, about the, the temporal and the eternal order of all things. It all actually is impounded without us having to try to bring it about in our own way. Yeah. So I tend to fall into the camp of like more wanting, of course, to go into this, in this direction of like saying like, what is it that God is trying to communicate to us? While at the same time, we're, we're of course respecting, as we've said that like words matter, words are a construct though. Words are subservient to God and though, because they are finite, they do not express his infinite being and that he will use these frameworks to often communicate something. So like, you know, like the question is like, where's the rub then of yeah. all the stuff we talked about? Like, where is like the sweet spot? I'm sure maybe that's what people are asking now after we got to this point. 
Yeah. So I think um, we can maybe cut to the chase. I'm distracted by my dog freaking out. Um, <laughs> she's she's asking. She's hearing she's us. Asking. And she's like, finally, well, let, let's, guys, let's just do get this. To it. Let's close out the episode by just talking about where we actually land as individuals. Because uh, we've said before, and actually Jesse and I don't think have had in depth conversations about this online or offline about yeah, where we land not. on this. I can't imagine we're that far apart, just because I know right, Jesse. But uh, do you want to start, or do you want me to start on kind of where go, we you actually go ahead. land? Yeah, you go ahead. So I, I land on what I might call like the accommodated view of Genesis 1 and 2, which I think is probably pretty similar where you're going to end up, is that God is describing through the pen of Moses an event that is unlike any other event in recorded history, right? Uh, to the point of we have in chronological language, temporal language, the beginning of time, right? How do you even talk right. about the beginning of time? And so there are certain features of the Genesis one account that I look at and say, strictly speaking, this can't be literally true. So for example, in Genesis seven, it says, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, well, the Hebrew word expanse refers to a physical barrier that is right. uh, typically made of beaten metal right? It's like a flat sheet of metal that's beaten out that then is used to create like a dome or a structure. Um, I don't think that this is the classic, um, you know, the earth is riding on the back of a turtle and rests on four pillars and there's a dome. I, I don't take that view. And I don't take the view that God is using that ancient Near Eastern cosmology, which is largely discredited that that, that actually is the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. I don't right. take that view. But what I do see is that the that God is using a word picture to describe what he actually did. As far as we know, there's no waters out somewhere beyond the edge of the universe, right? It's not as though we expect to cross past some sort of barrier and then we're in the outer waters. That's not what we think the universe is structured like. We have no reason to think that the ancient Israelites thought that that's what the universe was structured like. But the the Bible is using this language of a physical barrier that separates the waters above from the waters below to tell us something about God. And the reason that I come to this view is that the other place that this language of the water or the, the, the expanse or the, you know, it's, it calls the expanse sky. That's the name of this expanse. This right. barrier is named sky. The other place that this language is used prominently is in the flood account, right? And what happens yes. in the flood account is that God opens up these windows in this expanse. And that's where the water comes from, that, that gen partially where the water comes from that generates the, the flood. Now, the ancient people were not dumb. They didn't think there were literal windows in the sky and that they opened right. up when it rained. That's not, that's not what the ancient people thought. I know that we have this picture of like the Bronze Age people that were totally stupid and had no idea how the world worked. They didn't have a full comprehension of the water cycle, but they also didn't generally think there was like some barrier up there and that like the water was filtering through. And so God uses this language to describe to us what he's doing. And then when we come to Genesis, uh, Genesis seven, when the God opens the, the windows in the sky to, to allow the flood to happen. Well, what we have is now we've got this, this sort of resonance between the two and it's now the flood is an act of decreation, right? The creation in large part was the structuring and, and restraining of all these, of these chaotic waters, which included this barrier that helped the outer chaos waters from keeping or from overcoming his ordered creation. Well, when he decides to 
judge the earth, he allows those chaos waters to, to break through that barrier. And so I don't think that this is mythological. I don't think that the people reading it would have thought either thought, yeah, this is, this is patently false. Or they also wouldn't have thought, you know, these aren't, these aren't people thinking that Zeus lives on some mountain in, you know, in Greece. That's not what's going on in, in this text here. Moses knew that God didn't live on a mountain. He knew that God was not some old man in the sky, but this text is still telling us true things in an accommodated fashion. So I would say that for the most part, Genesis one is telling us literal history in the order that it happened over the space of six literal 24 hour days. However, there are features in the Genesis one text that we have to understand in a similar way to how the Bible talks about God snorting from his nostrils when he's angry or saving his people with his right hand. God probably, I mean, I maybe I don't know, I guess I wasn't there and maybe I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, listen, you bonehead. Of course, there's actually a physical barrier that I put in place. I I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I don't think it is. I don't think God literally placed a physical metal barrier in the sky to hold the waters back. And then somehow now that we can fly out past the, that barrier, that barrier is not there anymore. I know people who think there were these outer waters and there was a physical barrier and that when God allowed the flood to happen or caused right. the flood to happen, that that barrier doesn't exist. And there are no more outer waters because all those outer, outer waters became inner waters when they crashed in and flooded the earth. Right. I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. So I would call this an accommodated view of Genesis 1, where God is accommodating something that our human understanding cannot comprehend, cannot fully get our heads around. He's accommodating the reality of what happened to our ability to understand. And there's always going to be a level of uh, a level of metaphoricizing things, right? Um, we've used it. I've, I've used this example. I won't put this on Jesse before because it's a little bit crass. I've used the example of when a parent tries to explain to their children where babies come from. The difference between saying, well, uh, when when a mommy and a daddy love each other, they give each other a special kind of hug. And that's where babies come from versus a parent who says, well, when a mommy and a daddy love each other, a stork brings a baby to them. That's a mythology, right? right? There's nothing right. true about that. There's nothing true right. about the stork account. There is something true about the quote unquote special hug account of human procreation, <laughs> right? If you've got kids, I'm sorry if you have to have a, a difficult conversation. I, should, I guess I should have put a, like a warning on that. But the Bible is accommodating itself to our limited capacities when it tells us that God separated the upper waters from the lower waters and placed this barrier between the waters to keep them from colliding with each other and crashing from each other, right? That's that's what I think the Bible is doing in Genesis 1. Mostly literal, mostly historic, happened in basically the order and the the, the time frame, right. the 24-hour time frame that it's talking about. Yes. Um, I have my own way that I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to Genesis 2 of understanding how Genesis 2 fits into Genesis 1. But I think for the most part, I read this as historical narrative in order with relatively normal timescales um, with a few features that need need to be understood as um, analogical speech or accommodated speech on God's behalf. Right. Yeah. That was helpful. Although I'm laughing because I've never heard the special hug thing. You have. We said it on the show. People are going to yell at you. We talked about it on the show. Yes. I've I've not. I just, I must have blocked that out because I never heard of it before then. I think you probably blocked it out. You probably are going to block this out again. It's going to come up again in like three months and you're going to be like, I've never heard such a thing. That's, 
That's true. I, that is hilarious. I actually think that's honestly probably a helpful way to understand some of this. Here's the here's the reason why I find it hard to argue against everything you've said. I don't know what I would call my view, but it's I think essentially in line with what you're saying because there's this idea that like as reformed Christians we have this special stake in the creation evolution debate, and part of that is because with our high view of Scripture we are pre-committed to the integrity of the Word of God in all right. areas of life. So. By virtue of that, I'm certainly going to fall in this place of what God is telling us is what actually happened. That this is, I almost hate to use historical because that sounds like yeah. just like too sterile. Like this is God reporting on what took place. I understand that also means historical, but in the sense that like he is trying to explain to us how he actually did it in a way that we can understand. But at the same time, of course, I'm prone to admit that we're talking about like an imperfect medium of communicating that. So we're yeah. talking about like these massive spiritual truths that are outside of our understanding, one, and two, are miraculous in their own way because we cannot understand what it means to have something come out of nothing. And so like we have to admit, or we should be able to willing to admit as Christians that the Bible is going to use a literary literary device by nature because it is a literary means. Right. So like we have to admit that there is metaphor at play. So when I say like I interpret the Bible literally, what I mean is like literally in the context of the means in which things are being transmitted and communicated to me, knowing that there are different devices and you take the device at face value, understanding what its purpose is. Right. So poetry, for instance, is poetry. Metaphor is metaphor. But they're still in every way always communicating an exact truth. I think we're in line here, like almost like completely, if that makes sense. Like, because yeah. I just find it hard to debate that we have to, again, totally, I would say like fall underneath the way of scripture, understanding that it's communicating something to us in like a finite method. And those methods are by their very nature limited. So it's, I just hate like when somebody pits against like this idea that like, where well, you, you're saying it's literal and yet you're, can't you, you, you're, are you going to take all the metaphors literally? Like, of course not, yeah. because there's a way to understand a metaphor literally as a metaphor, right? literally. Yeah. So like not to Chris Traeger this, but like that is <laughs> literally what a metaphor is like a comparison. So like, and also like I'm standing of course on the shoulders of those who are far smarter than I, when we come to all of the confessions, which really have a long kind of storied past in this idea of interpreting the Bible in this strict literal sense. So yes, that's absolutely where I fall. So I, I think we're on the same page. Do we need to come up with a name for what that is? Because like, if it's accommodative in the sense that we're just saying like, Hey, like literary devices exist right. and they're used and employed in different ways. And you ought to understand them for what they are because they don't advertise themselves to be something that's not like a metaphor is not standing up and saying like, right. Hey, I'm telling you exactly what's taking place. Like that would be ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So I, I think like I'm, I think we're, we're totally in line, but now I'm just all fired up because I'm thinking <laughs> about people saying like, how, how dare you say like, you know, trying to invoke this argument that because the Bible is a complex document. And, and by the way, we would expect, I, I would say that if this is a supernatural document and that God is communicating to us in varied and specific ways that he would use into his credit and for his expression, all of the various things that human beings use to understand something that is outside really 
of their comprehension that wouldn't you expect that he would use these things, yeah. even in his description of creation? So why would we fight against that? Why would we try to say and create arguments that would say, you know, well, that's not a literal or proper understanding of it? So I guess my short answer is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think I think people should be, maybe not people should be careful. Jesse and I should be careful to clarify. We're not saying that the account of what Genesis 1 and 2 is not uh, not historical, right? Right. I don't, exactly. Neither of us are saying that this right. is a, this is the, the, I don't want to say extreme, the most committed framework theory people would say that there is little, little or nothing historical presented in Genesis one, right? That it's, it's an entirely literary device to communicate something about who God is and the purpose of the creation, the purpose of the the cosmos, that's not where Jesse and I sound. That's not where I'm at. It's not where Jesse seems to be. Right. Right. I agree. What we're saying instead is that Genesis one is trying to commute the his, compute, communicate <laughs> the the historical reality of how God created, yes, exactly. which is not actually possible to create to communicate yes. to created individuals. Right. Boom. How do you communicate to someone whose only frame of reference of light is coming from a singular location? Right? right. All light that we see comes from a specific point of origin. How do you communicate the origin of light out of nothing that has no point exactly. of origin? Right. It's not as though when God said, let there be light, there was some primordial light bulb that came into existence right. and all light came from that. Light was just everywhere. As At least that's the way the text seems to present it. Light just existed. God said, let there be light and light existed. And it says, and there was, right? It's trying to get at this fact that like light just came into being everywhere at the same time at exactly the same instant. How do right. you actually communicate that in any meaningful <laughs> right. sense to people who've only ever experienced light as coming from a point of origin? So this this is a view. Again, I don't actually know that this view has a name. Maybe we need to name it. Maybe we're like maybe we're like theological pioneers on this, Jesse, but <laughs> This the only thing I think of is like this is the accommodated view. This is actually seems to me to be the natural view that comes about from what we've already said about how we understand God communicating himself to us. Yes. He communicates to us in baby talk. He communicates to us in ways that are suitable to our limitations. Genesis 1 is God creating this incommunicable event to us in ways that are suitable to our abilities, to our limitations. And so, yes, there are some features of this text that if you look at it on a real strict wooden level, aren't true, right? It's probably not the case that the earth literally generated seeds and plants out of right, itself. Of course. Right? right. What actually probably happened is God said, let the earth bear fruit or bear, bear plants. And all of a sudden the plants appeared everywhere. It's yes. not as though there was, and this is, again, like sometimes the naturalistic view wants to look at like, well, this is actually the process of plants evolving from single, you know, from the soil and blah, blah, blah. Like that's probably not what it's talking about. Right. It says, let the seas right. swarm with creatures, with swarming creatures. Well, it's probably not saying that like there was a spontaneous biogenesis of, of living by, you know, protozoa that became fish. It's really just saying like God created, God created fish in the sea. At one minute, there was no fish in the Amen. sea, and then there was fish in the sea because God fish, created right. it, and he said, let there be, <laughs> right? So, so of course, the Bible is going to have to explain some of these unexplainable things in ways that, right. strict, quote-unquote, strictly speaking, are not, quote-unquote, true, but that doesn't mean that they're not telling us true things, 
right? Yeah, when exactly. I say that my bed is as hard as a rock, or I say that this test is um, very difficult, right? Or it's very hard. Well, those things, those two sentences don't line up. But when you say this bed is hard as a rock, you're not actually saying that I'm sleeping on a surface that has the same density right. and molecular structure as granite. That's just not what you're saying. And nobody thinks like, well, then you're not telling the truth. Everybody understands what it means to say something in an accommodated fashion. So I, right. I think this is... I think this is the right view. I think this is the view that I would encourage people to hold. It has a lot of apologetic um, value when you can come to the text and say, yeah, I get it. Like, yeah, you're saying that this doesn't make, this doesn't make strict chronological sense that you would have evening and morning on a day where there's no sun and no earth. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I get it. Like, yeah, that doesn't make strict chronological sense because it's an accommodated text. It's a, it's a word picture that's trying to help us understand something that's incomprehensible from our point of reference. So I hope that this has been helpful to people to sort of first divide, uh, I guess we're doing kind of like the framework theory with the creation views here to first divide (laughs) out the views that just don't make sense. The naturalistic views, the historic, the the mythological views, and then to sort of look at the views that do make sense, right? There's the views that want to take this as really strict historical chronology. The views that want to take this as almost literary, only exclusively literary type stuff. And then I think maybe we call it the reform brotherhood view, where like the it. text is still basically chrono- chronological, but it's accommodated to our limitations. But yeah, I hope this I has been fair. helpful for people. I hope that this hasn't come across as like overly taxonomical, right? There's overlap on all these views. There's no one view that is entirely yeah. mutually exclusive. But I think this has been a good way to look at it and think through these these understandings. Yeah, and like so many things that we talk about, let us be your lightning rod. Like if, <laughs> if you're if this fires you up, that's okay. Like because the whole point is we want to spur good thoughtfulness, conversation, and dialogue about these things. Again, with the whole emphasis that we're coming back to the scriptures whom God has given us so that we might understand him better, worship him more effectively, love him more, and serve others. So that's really our aim here. So there's a couple of things that I've learned, even in the course, like I thought you were going to say, so this is the definitive episode. Like it was right there. It was right on your lips. Like I thought at that point, but I think that, um, this is like, is it fair to say, I want to call this like the honest view of Genesis one, because it's like reflecting the fact that God is teaching us that he means what he says, that this is actually what occurred at the same times acknowledging that he's using a device that would be like suboptimal for God. Right. Like when you said like he uses baby talk, I I think some people would, would uh, like bristle at that. But the fact of the matter is you're communicating something that's absolutely real. That is that like, you know, he, God has to condescend in all communication to us And the Bible is in some ways like condescension. So it's just okay to admit that on the face and admitting that is not weakness. It's actually acknowledging that God is greater, is higher, is more glorious. So I think this is all true. So certainly I've come away from this conversation with that. I also love the Russian nesting dolls reference. <laughs> I think that that's something we should definitely uh, carry forward. And I can't remember because this could, I'm, I'm about to possibly fall into the popcorn and coconut oil, like space of like recapitulating or repeating something I said before. But have we talked about how one time when I was in Russia, I went through Lenin's tomb and got pulled out of line at gunpoint because I put my hands in my pocket. So that did happen. I haven't even heard that story, not even offline. <laughs> we need to have a conversation about this. Yeah, we, we, we can talk about this. That's the first thing I thought of because when you were like, when we talk about a rush these days. But also, at one point, you made me laugh because you said something like, 
I don't have great feelings about C.S. Lewis or Narnia. No, oh, yeah. I don't have great feelings about Narnia. It was the Chronicles Narnia. of Narnia. <laughs> I don't love the Chronicles of Narnia. I have a lot what? of questions like, about the all? Chronicles of Narnia. Not, not even just like at, well, I mean, see, here we go. Here's a whole nother story, right? Here's a whole nother episode of like talking about metaphor and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But I just laughed that you were like, I don't have great feelings about Narnia, which made me feel like you have strong feelings that are not positive about Narnia. I, I mean, I, I'll just, I'll, I won't bury the lead on this. I have strong, I have um, serious <laughs> questions about Aslan and the second commandment and how oh, well, those books, fair. how those fair. books position and describe this is like starting a whole nother episode, but I know I just baited you. Aslan is not a metaphor for Jesus. <laughs> Aslan, according to Lewis is Jesus incarnated into a different yeah, world. Yeah, that's so true. descriptions that's of true. Aslan, there's some serious questions about whether those are permitted under the second commandment. So, so it's, it's not about Mr. Tumnus. No, no. Mr. Tumnus is fine. <laughs> I, I have no, I have no poor feelings. I mean, he's kind of a traitor, but he kind of redeems himself. <laughs> And he feels bad about it. So he feels really yeah. bad about it. He turns into stone. It's not a good, yeah, not a good situation for him. That's very Spoiler true. Alerts, here's one of the by things. The here's yeah. I was gonna say here's <laughs> what is like. What is the statute of limitations yeah. on a book? It's got to be less than Lewis. fifty years. Yeah, for sure. Public domain. So here's one of the things I love about our conversations, and hopefully listeners appreciate about these episodes is you just never know where this is gonna go. Did did anybody anticipate it was gonna end this way? Probably not. Not even and us. Yet, yeah, not even us. That listen, only the superintending will of God. So to that end, until next time, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>